I want to tell you a hypothetical story. Hypothetical. You're a mom or a dad. You're walking by your 14-year-old son's room. Let's call him Dan. And <laughs> hypothetical. And the room is a mess. It is terrible. Dan, clean your room. Two days later, you happen to walk by his room again, and the room looks exactly like it looked before. Yeah, I thought I told you to clean your room. Well, Dad, I'm not sure I really believe in clean rooms. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about it, but I'm, I'm just not convinced yet. Dan, clean your room. Two days later, you come by the room again, and it's in the same condition it was in before. In fact, maybe even worse. Dan, get in here. I thought I told you to clean your room. Well, Dan, the, Dad, the neatest, the neatest thing happened. I met a group of guys who were really into clean rooms, and, and they invited me to meet with them. And so we're getting together on Wednesday nights and, and talking about clean rooms, and I, I think I'm getting to kind of understand what it... Dan, clean your room. A couple days later, you go by, the room is worse than it's ever been. I mean, it is a pigsty. Dan, I thought I told you to clean your room. Well, I'm... I'm just, the problem is, I know I would not be a perfect room cleaner, and I would just feel so hypocritical having people think I have a clean room when really there's still stuff under the bed and thrown in the closet. Let's move that story over to uh, the New Testament. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees a couple of fishermen there, Peter and Andrew, and they've been fishing, and they're cleaning their nets and Jesus says to Peter, come, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Nothing happens. A couple days later, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee again, and sure enough, there are Peter and Andrew again. They're just getting ready to push their boats out in the water, and Jesus says, Peter, come and follow me. And Peter says, well, Lord, I've, I've been thinking about it, but I'm just... Uh, I, I, I think the thing for me to do really at this point is, um, well, I really enjoy fishing and I'm not sure I'm ready to make that step of becoming a follower of yours. Last week, Alice talked about that part of our missional mandate that talks about our helping next generations to encounter Jesus, which is a vital first step, but it's not the last step, is it? It's not the next step, which needs to be following Jesus. So if we're going to talk about our commission by God as a church and as individual Christians to help next generations encounter and follow Jesus to bless a broken world, we better be sure we understand what it means to follow Jesus and what's involved in that for them and for us. I was uh, really impacted by a book recently. It was uh, actually loaned to me by uh, Phil and Heather Hunt, the book Not a Fan by Kyle Engelman, Eidelman. And um, so about the time that our leadership and staff here at Orchard were, were kind of finishing up our missional mandate, I was being impacted by this book. And uh, I think Phil and Heather would tell you that if you ever loan me a book, don't expect it back soon. This one, though, impacted me so much, I ended up buying my own copies, so I did actually give theirs back to them. 
the idea of the book was so simple and so clear that it just really pierced my heart. How many people, the author asked, think that they're followers of Jesus when they're really just a fan of Jesus? I was a big fan of John Denver. John Denver was getting popular about the time that Sally and I moved to Denver and I bought my first guitar and my how-to book and started learning how to play guitar and I wanted to be like John Denver. And when I got good enough that I could play country roads and leave it on a jet plane and uh, Rocky Mountain High and sunshine on my show, I just felt like I was, I had made it. I mean, I even liked the way the guy looked. You remember that kind of strange haircut with bangs and the, and the wire rim glasses? I was a huge fan. I had every one of his cassette tapes. And I happened to actually be in Denver when when John Denver died in a, um, a plane crash, and I was in Colorado at the time. And I had, I really thought about going to his funeral because I was a big fan. I'm a big fan of Stephen King. I love Stephen King books. I think he is one of the most gifted writers I've ever read. Nobody can tell a story better than he does. And so many people have misconceptions about his writing. He writes some great stuff. And I think he has a really true grasp about the, the reality and presence of evil in the world and how that battle between good and evil is always going on. I read everything. One of the exciting things for me lately has been getting my daughter hooked on uh, Stephen King books. And I love to talk about them. Now, I even read his nonfiction. I'm a big fan of Stephen King. And I can be a fan of John Denver or... Stephen King or a lot of other people, but I can only be a follower of one. Jesus calls us not to be fans, but to be followers. Let me read you a couple of verses from, uh, from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is talking. And this is what he says. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And in turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then later on, as he's continuing that conversation, he says this. He says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. It sounds like Jesus is saying that being a disciple of his is an important decision because it's going to be a costly decision. See, when you decide to follow Jesus, it means you're not going to follow anybody else. Jesus says, you know, you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, you know. When you make that choice to follow Jesus, it means you put aside all of the other loyalties that might lay claim to first place in your life. It would be a little like um, um, a man proposing to his sweetheart. And he gets down on one knee and he says, Honey, you are so important to me. I just don't want to live my life without you. Would you marry me and... And be one of the important women in my life. 
And if she said yes to that, how crazy would that be? And you see a husband out having a romantic dinner with some woman who is not his wife. What does that stir up in you? You know it's wrong because his loyalty, his priority has got to be to that one person in his life, his wife. And you confront him on it and he says, well, uh, actually, it's okay with my wife. She knows that she's just one among many important women in my life. And yet that seems to be sort of what we're saying to Jesus sometimes. That when we're, when we're deciding to follow him, but we're unwilling to give up the other priorities in our lives. Jesus says to us you know, that when we follow him, we give up everything else and we choose to follow him. There were people in the Bible, weren't there, who encountered Jesus but didn't become followers. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus uh, tells us, about three of them who came to him. The first one comes to him and says, you know, Lord, I, uh, you know, I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What's he saying? Do you understand what it's going to cost you to follow me? Do you understand what it's like? I'm not calling you to some glamorous, easy lifestyle. To follow me means you become like me, and I have no place to lay my head. I'm going to read you um, an account from this book, Not a Fan. It's a story of the man who actually was the first uh, foreign missionary uh, from to go from the United States. His name was um, Adonai, Adoniram uh, Judson. And let me just read to you a little bit about him. It says um, that when he was 24, he decided to leave America and sail to Burma. Now, Burma didn't have a single missionary and was an extremely hostile environment. He was in love with Anne, who was 23 at the time. Adoniram wanted to marry Anne and then moved to Burma to spread the gospel. But before he married Anne, he wrote her father the following letter asking for her hand in marriage. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to fatal influences of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps to violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness? Her father told him that it was her decision to make. And so Anne thought about that decision. And during that time, she wrote to a friend named Lydia. She said, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here to sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and to go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. So in 1813, they left for Burma. 
they would experience one hardship after another. In 1824, Adoniram was put in prison. He was there for 18 months. At night, his feet were tied up and hoisted up onto the air till only his shoulders and head rested on the ground. It was often 110 degrees and the mosquitoes would eat him alive at night. When he went to prison, Anne was pregnant, but she walked two miles every day to plead that Judson be released. After a year in prison, eating rotting food, Adoniram had wasted away with hollow eyes, dressed in rags and crippled from torture. His daughter, Maria, was born while he was in prison. Anne was as sick and thin as Adoniram. Her milk dried up. Mercifully, the jailer actually let Judson out of prison each evening so that he could take the baby into the village and beg for women to nurse the baby. Eventually, Adoniram was released. Not long after that, Anne died at 37 from spotted fever. Because of Adoniram and Anne's efforts, though, the entire Bible was translated into Burmese. Today, there are 3,700 congregations that all trace their beginning to when Adoniram and Ann Judson said to God, wherever. God pointed to Burma and said, what about there? Another man came to Jesus and Jesus said, come and follow me. And he said, but first let me go and, and bury my father probably meant that his father was still alive and he wanted to stay with his parents while his parents were still living. See, it's always easy when Jesus calls us to say, yes, but not now. Yes, but first let me do this or that. And I have found in my life and in the lives of countless other peoples that saying not now, not yet, is saying no that there's never going to be a better time than today to follow Jesus. I'll follow you, Jesus, as soon as I graduate. I'll follow you, Jesus, when I get my school debt paid off. I will be your follower, Jesus. I will pay the price. I will go where you send me. I will do what you want me to do as soon as you give me a Christian spouse. As soon as my kids are grown, as soon as my kids are out of the house, and again and again and again, we're tempted to say to Jesus the easy answer, yes, I will follow you, but not now. Remember when Sally and I first moved to Des Moines, um, the area of Reformed churches included the Reformed church in the little town of Otley, which is about halfway between Des Moines and Pella. And there was a Reformed church there, and Sally and I got to know the pastor and his wife, Alan Sue Schrader. Had a couple really little kids, and uh, and they said yes to following Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Chiapas, Mexico. And I remember talking to them before they left. They were going. They were taking their family, their two little kids. They were moving to Chiapas, where they were going to live in a hut with a dirt floor, no running water. And I thought to myself, my. Now, how do you say yes to Jesus when Jesus says, how about there? I was so impressed. Another came to Jesus and said, well, I'll follow you, but um, first I need to, uh, to say goodbye to my family. 
Psalm uh, 63, verse 8 says, My soul clings to you. What does your soul cling to today? Does it cling to Jesus? Does it cling to Jesus to the point where you're willing to let go of everything else? To be a follower of Jesus means that we cling to him. There is a, a word in the Bible that is used so often and it is so little understood and so watered down. It's the word Lord, kurios in the Greek. And we use it of Jesus all the time, don't we? We call him Lord. We talk about Jesus as being the Lord, the Lord Jesus. It's almost like a nickname that we apply to him. But the word actually means master in the sense of someone who owns a slave. So we might say, rather than master, slave owner. And I don't like that term. And that's got a lot of bad baggage with it, doesn't it? I don't like to think of Jesus as being a slave owner. And if I'm calling Jesus Lord, if I'm saying you're the slave owner, then I'm saying in effect to him, I am the slave. And I don't like to think of myself as a slave. Disciple, theologian, even follower, but slave just implies such submissiveness and lack of control I don't know that I want to say to Jesus, I'm willing to be your slave. It's degrading. What did you think Jesus was calling you to? What do you think it means to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, the slave gives up all his or her rights. He has no property. He has no rights. He lives to serve his master. What do you think Jesus called you to? And so we want to say to Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm the slave, you are the master, but, and there's always a but, always an exception, isn't there? I will serve you, I will be your follower, except I'm going to live with my girlfriend and we're going to sleep together and I'll be your follower other than that. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He gives this beautiful explanation of what it's going to mean to live as a follower of his he talks about the blessings that god gives to those who are who are pure in heart and who are peacemakers to those who turn the other cheek and love their enemies he talks about being light and salt and we hear those words and they sound so good and then he gets to the end of it and jesus says so let me tell you this story he says whoever hears these words of mine and does them Whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rains came and the floods rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it stood because it was founded upon a rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rains came and the floods rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And you see, if I say to Jesus, I'm going to be your follower, but I will be your follower, but you've got to understand, I have got to cut corners in my business or I'm not going to be able to make it. And I hear your words and I know what you think about it. I'll be your follower, except that. You know. And Jesus says, you know, whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them is not a follower. 
As long as I'm trying to keep that little part of my life separate from God's control, as long as I'm so clinging on to that that I can't let my soul cling only on to Jesus, I'm probably not really a follower. Well, let me read you one more story. It's a story of a man named William Borden. He was uh, the heir of the Borden Milk Company, for, of which we are probably familiar. Let me read you a little bit uh, how his story is told here. So William Borden will forever be known as a follower of Christ. There are plenty of other ways he could have been described. He could have been described as a multimillionaire. He was born in the late 1800s. He was the heir of a family fortune, a, a dairy company that's worth billions today. He could be described as an Ivy League graduate. He did his undergraduate work at Yale, and he earned a graduate degree at Princeton. But William Borden decided to be known as the follower of Christ. So he left his millions and followed the call of Jesus to an unreached Muslim people group. After he graduated from high school, his parents sent him on a tour around the world. And as he traveled across Europe, Asia, and the Middle East... God began to call him to reach out to lost people who had never heard of the good news of the gospel. So he wrote home to tell his parents he was giving his life to Jesus on the mission field. And on that trip, he wrote two words in his Bible, no reserves. He knew that following Jesus in this way would require a complete commitment. So William's father insisted that he attend the university, so he enrolled in Yale His freshman year, he found that his passion for Christ was not shared by many. And so he began meeting with a friend in the morning to read the Bible and pray together. Before long, other students joined him, and it became a revival on that campus as students met in different groups for Bible study and prayer. And by the time William was a senior, a thousand of the students were a part of one of these groups. One entry he recorded in his personal journey during that time simply said, Say no to self. And yes to Jesus every time. During his time at Yale, Borden also worked with the homeless and the hurting who were living in the streets of New Haven. He founded and personally funded the Yale Hope Mission in an effort to rehabilitate alcoholics and addicts. His father died while he was at Yale, leaving William with a significant family fortune. Upon graduating from Yale, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. No retreats. He knew that following Jesus meant that he couldn't look back. He knew Jesus was calling him to world missions and he decided to take the gospel to the Kansu people in China. But before going to China, he went to Egypt where he could learn the Arabic language and prepare for his ministry to Muslims. And while he was in Egypt, he caught spinal meningitis. William Borden died one month later at the age of 25. He was buried in Cairo. There might be some who would say that he didn't make a good trade. He gave up his family, his fortune, and a future career to follow Jesus as a missionary. And he died before he reached the mission field. But this man, who sparked a revival at Yale and ministered to hundreds through his mission and has inspired thousands of missionaries with his commitment, knew he had made the right decision. 
After his death, there were three phrases found written inside the Bible of a completely committed follower of Jesus. No reserves. No retreat. No regrets. I think, uh, as I think about Orchard and the missional mandate that God has given to us, I think maybe we have failed in the past as we have called people to discipleship uh, to help them to count the cost. Following Jesus gives you everything and costs you everything. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we, we sing the words and we say the prayers and so often we don't even stop to think about what it means. It will be my joy to say your will, your way. It will be my joy to say your will, your way. I don't know, Jesus. These are hard words to say. I don't know. If I can say them, I don't know if I can say them with joy. But we hear your call to us to follow you. Help us both to be your followers and to share with others the amazing journey that you call us to. Amen.